0: According to the Mental Health Commission of Canada, mental illness affects approximately 1.2 million children across the country, making it imperative that we all work together to make sure that some deserving kids have the necessary resources in order to feel fully included in all aspects of societal life. Jan Stewart is a mother who lives with two kids with multiple mental health and complex disorders. She's a mental health governance expert and has extensive board experience in both Canada and the United States. Including currently chairing Carrie's place for Autism Services, the largest autism services provider in Canada. There is no doubt that Stuart is on a mission to inspire and empower parents with children with mental health disorders to persevere. Have hope and not To give up, that's precisely the reason she wrote her upcoming book, Hold On Tight, which is a brutally honest account where she holds nothing back, including the incredibly emotional journey and drain it takes on parents in the same situation. I was honored to have the privilege to sit down with Stuart to learn more about her journey. So without further delay, I'm Kevin McShann. Let this conversation to welcome you to the program, and I have to tell you that I'm super delighted and honored that you've uh, carved out some time to engage in conversation with me all about the work you do to promote uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion surrounding mental health. So with that, I welcome you to the program, and I'm so delighted to see you this morning.
1: Well, I feel the same way. I'm very excited, and thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Now, Jan, I know that you've been on the front lines with the mental health journey for a very long time. You've got two uh, children that have some mental health disorders, but you're on a mission to make sure that they and other uh, people in that same circumstance have access to full societal inclusion. So I'm wondering if you can tell me about all the great work that you do.
1: Absolutely, I'd be delighted to, Kevin. So, first of all, I do have two wonderful children. There's Andrew, who has autism, Tourette syndrome, obsessive compulsive disorder, ADHD, and learning disabilities, and his younger sister Ainsley, who also has Tourette syndrome with mood and anxiety disorders, ADHD. And learning disability. So it's been quite a handful to say the least. But as I write in my book, Hold On Tight, almost from the time they were born, we knew that something was wrong. In Andrew's case, his hands and his feet constantly moved in circular motions. He never talked to himself in his crib like other babies do or played, and he had no self control or regulation when it came to eating. And Every time I brought up a concern with our pediatrician, he said, Jan, calm down. Your children are fine. Stop being an overly vigilant triple type A mother. Unfortunately, this is fairly common and he was wrong. And over the next several years, we had growing concerns. There was impulsivity, distractibility, anxiety. There were ticks. Neither child could hold a pencil or a crayon. And when Andrew turned nine, his mental health disorders burst forward in full force. Seemingly out of nowhere, this loving gentle boy started engaging in two hours screaming, terrifying rages, lashing out and anything and everything in his way. And we later found out, but of course we didn't know at the time that this was associated with his Tourette syndrome. And within a month, He started engaging in nonstop rituals, like he couldn't walk through a door unless he gradually and slowly counted to 14, because his brain had terrifying, disturbing thoughts that his sister would be kidnapped unless he did that. And these bizarre rituals escalated very quickly. He started rubbing his head against shrubs. He even licked the filthy subway floor, if you can believe it. And then we saw more tics, more impulsivity. He lacked abstract thinking capabilities, had a lot of difficulty with change and maintaining eye contact. Ainsley came along much easier as a baby and toddler. And we thought, for sure, we have some relief here. But when she hit kindergarten, the cracks began to show. Her behavior was out of control. She was disruptive. She jumped on desks. She shouted. She interrupted. She was constantly sent to the principal's office. And then came increasing fragility, paralyzing anxiety, with more learning disabilities ticks. She misread social cues so that she couldn't understand what her friends were saying. And she sadly, gradually lost every friend she had in the neighborhood. You can imagine what that did to her self-esteem. So both kids... Have really faced heartbreaking adversity. And they know that their up and down roller coaster cycles are gonna continue. But with perseverance, grit, and determination that they have, there's hope. And what's wonderful is you can succeed if you just keep at it. And it's their stories combined with my work in governance that has propelled me forward.
0: Absolutely. Well, I generally share the same synergy because you know one, one of the things that i live my life by is the saying that inclusion is the gateway to independence so how do you think we can create an inclusive future for um, children with all kinds of disabilities uh,
1: it's a great question kevin and i think it's a very important one so to me first of all let's define inclusivity <laughs> inclusivity means treating everyone fairly and equally with dignity and respect. It doesn't mean treating everyone the same, but it means treating people and giving them equal access to services, opportunities, resources, right? So what do we need to do? Social connectivity is key. It helps battle feelings of isolation and embrace feelings of worth and belonging. We need to educate and spread facts about whether it's mental health or any other disability to fight stigma. We need to train more healthcare professionals, not only to deepen the pool, but to facilitate access, shorten wait times, and make the system easier to navigate. It's far too complicated today. Schools need better resources for early intervention and the private sector has to shoulder a greater responsibility to hire and retain individuals with disabilities, whether it's mental or physical, to embrace truly inclusive workplaces. Governments obviously have a key role to play, not only in expanding anti-discrimination and anti-bullying laws and and policies, but in improved access to healthcare and widened insurance company coverage. You know, we know in the case of people with mental health disorders, there's huge economic plight, and they need increased economic support, along with, as we all know, more a greater investment in more affordable housing and childcare. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And you know, uh, Jen, Jen, I want to pick up on something you just said about more investment in healthcare professionals. You know, one of the one of the things that I uh, see as an issue is. Also, payer quality, right, for those that enter the field of uh, supporting uh, folks with disabilities. I, I know this because, as you know, I have observed proposals, and one of the right. uh, things that, uh, you know, well, when you look for staff members, when you find a good one, you want to keep them, right? So Absolutely. It's, it's important for payer quality, too. Would you agree with
1: that? Totally, and I think you would probably agree with me, Kevin, from our different perspectives that finding the right psychiatrist, psychologist, healthcare, professional social workers is extremely difficult and complex, and it's important, and that's what I write about in my book, is how do you go about this? I give tips and advice to help people live more fulfilling lives for themselves and their children. And those tips, by the way, if you just go to my website, at JanStewartAuthor.com, you can ask to sign up for my newsletter, and I'll be sending, starting to send those out in the new year.
0: Well, uh, fabulous, you know, uh, building a sense of community and support is so important in the work that, work that you do. I don't have to tell you that, right?
1: Absolutely. I And my governance work is so key in this regard. You know, I... I call myself a hope ambassador. I see it as my calling. And I recognize that not every person or parent or anyone with a disability has the time, energy, or reserves to devote to board work. But it's so beneficial if you can, and uplifting to see the difference you can make in people's lives. Now, my first advocacy work was way back with uh, Andrew's psychiatrist at SickKids Hospital in downtown Toronto. He, uh, he was working with a psychiatrist who specialized in his OCD, his obsessive compulsive disorder. And we co-founded the parent support group for OCD. And what was so important about that at the time, Kevin, was that I didn't know any other parent experiencing what we were. And forming this group allowed me to form connections of help and support. And from there, I was thrilled to be invited to join the board of CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which, as you know, is Canada's leading psychiatric hospital and a real global center of excellence. Did fascinating work there, everything from merging organizations together in mental health and addictions to recruiting, right before I left, the hospital's next CEO. And I've served on additional boards and advisory councils in both Canada and the U.S., but capped four years ago uh, uh, by joining Carrie's Place Autism Services. Carrie's Place is a wonderful organization. It's the largest autism services provider in Canada. It serves over 8,000 individuals with autism and their families throughout their whole lifespan, full suite of residential and community services, 1,200 staff, and I became its chair just last August.
0: Well, congratulations on that. You know, what? I- as you were saying that, Jan, uh, so I serve on the, uh, uh, well, one of the things that I do to give back to my local community is I s- serve on the uh, Family Advisory Council for the John the Children's Center here in Winter and Essex County. And one Fantastic. Of, well, well, thank you. One of uh, <laughs> the parents on that committee with me, her name is... Uh, Maria Sanders, and Maria has a, a daughter with autism, and yeah. one, one of the things that she advocates for in the work that we do on the company is more uh, awareness for the, uh, the, the challenges, as you uh, said earlier, about navigating the services when it comes to autism services. So from your community perspective, I'm wondering the work that still needs to be done and, and making, uh, uh, first of all, securing the services easier and then uh, navigating them once you get them, because I know it's not easy.
1: No, there is a crying need to expand and improve access to services in autism. Uh, first, let's go back, because some of your listeners may not know that autism is a neurological, developmental difference that affects the functioning of the brain. It's lifelong. There's no known cause. There's no known cure. Uh, Symptoms vary between individuals from mild to severe. And interestingly enough, within the same individual. And we have a saying that meeting one person with autism is meeting one person with autism because they vary so much. But generally what you see are differences in social communication and repetitive and restrictive behaviors. The Public Health Agency of Canada a few years ago estimated that one in 66 children and youth under the age of 18 have autism. Think about that. The prevalence is huge, it's hundreds of thousands. Now for children, our provincial government in Ontario has recently brought in the needs-based Ontario autism program to try to expedite services. But the sad reality is that the wait list for these kids is on average still over one year. And last year, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation reported that 50,000 children are waiting for services. And then as your children age and become adults, there's a whole new set of challenges for autistic individuals. The waitlist for housing, supportive housing, is decades long. The poverty level for those with intellectual disabilities and autism is significantly higher than the general population. And the latest frontier, which is being looked at, is aging individuals, and they're massively underserved. I've experienced all these with my family at home, but rest assured that if there is hope, if you just keep at it, you can do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm also curious to ask you about employment, because as you know, I served as uh, the ambassador for uh, the Discoverability Network, which is our province's uh, new online job matching portal for folks with disabilities and employers to get connected. So uh, talk to me about uh, employment as well for folks with all types of disabilities and where you come down on that side of the fence as well.
1: Yes, inclusive workplaces um, really have to be customized and to embrace inclusive workplaces, employers have a lot of work to do, and they can do it. Let me make this come alive with an example for you. My son has had three major employers. He's now grown. His first employer, he was a cashier at a grocery store, and it was wonderful. He is very gifted with customer service, uh, and he did very well for seven years. But at one point, the grocery store tried to pull him off cash and hide him in the back because he, quote, looked disabled. Of course, I became irate, sent a scathing letter to their head office, and he was immediately put back on cash. But trust had been broken, and that's not being an inclusive workplace. His next workplace was with a very well-known Toronto-based organization that really wanted him, but didn't know what to do with him. And in They gave him about an hour of work a day, and then they told him to go watch TV. Well, that's not meaningful work. It's not treating him as productive or equal. It's true for anyone with a disability, no matter what. His current employer is vastly different. He's been with Rogers Communications, the leading Canadian telecom company, for about four years now. And they've been a role model of inclusion and diversity. While his previous employers were well-meaning. Rogers has put that well-meaning into action. So what do I mean by that? One, they treat me, and I'm Andrew's legal guardian because he can't make decisions that are meaningful by himself. He doesn't have that ability. So they treat me as a true partner. They share their thinking with me. They listen to my advice, and they respect what I have to say. Two, they brought in a job coach both to help them And Andrew, particularly at the beginning with integration, but on an ongoing basis. Andrew and the company meets with them monthly or more if needed. They brought in customized accommodations, and this is key, the word customized. In Andrew's case, for example, because of his ADHD and impulsivity, he needs to have his work chunked in in smaller, meaningful pieces because change is very difficult for him. He can't work shift work like a number of his other colleagues, so they've set his hours every day. They have a special mentor whenever he needs it. Another thing they've done is anytime there's a minor issue, they contact me so that if he's, let's say, distracted at work, they can reach out to me and we can deal with it before it bubbles up and, and mushrooms. There's so much help and hope out there, but a corporation or organization has to not only have the will, but has to execute.
0: Execution is the key, isn't it?
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just before I ask you about your book, I have a, a bit of a selfish Well, I shouldn't say a bit of a self-serving question. So I oh. am going to in the new year. I'm going to address uh, the chief diversity officer and his staff of Westland, Michigan. and inclusion. So I'm wondering if you could just generally tell me the role you think uh, governments at all level, but all levels, but especially the local level, have to uh, sort of develop a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives.
1: Yes, and congratulations. That's exciting. Uh, isn't so, it? Yes.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's exciting, isn't
1: it? Absolutely all levels of government have to participate. And it has to come from the top. It's one thing to have a little island within the government believe in something. But unless it's it's gospel and it's spread, it doesn't work. You have to, just like with everything else, you have to live and walk the talk. And that's the key. And in my book, I do talk about these contrasts that I talked about in Andrew's Employers, the government has been involved in a, in an indirect way, but in an exciting way. Um, I don't know if you know the organization Ready, Willing and Able. I do, yes. But they're a fantastic national program that's funded by the government of Canada. And it's a partnership between the government and different autism and intellectual disabilities communities. And they help, they're hired by companies and they help companies hire and retain, the key word is retain as well, individuals with, in their case, intellectual disabilities and autism. It's that kind of program that is so meaningful and needed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, one of the reasons I know you wrote your book, Hold On Time, was because you wanted to pro- provide a mission to provide hope and inspiration to those families and parents and children that are going through a similar uh, circumstances as yours, and I know that it's a raw account of all of the emotional journeys that you've gone through throughout the year, so I'm fabulous. I'm I'm wondering if I can ask you about your book and the process about writing it and uh, how cathartic that was for you.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Of course, I'm excited about the book, which is uh, going to come out on March 8th. So it's already on pre-order on uh, Indigo, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble, so I'm excited. But when I started the research for Hold On Tight, and I talked to a number of psychiatrists in both Canada and the U.S., I was really surprised that relatively little has been written about raising children with mental health disorders from the parental perspective. And I'm proud that my book fills that void. On the one hand, I want parents to really understand the true reality of their situation, unsugar-coated. And I'm brutally honest and hold nothing back. You know, when Andrew was going through those terrible rituals and rages I discussed before, he told us at one point that he felt he was going crazy and wanted to die, and I just froze inside. And one day, Ainsley left me a note on my bed saying, I know I'm a bad kid and I'm out of control, but I can't help it because of the chaos at home. And I just died inside. And the worst night probably happened one cold, snowy February evening. The kids had had a good day. And when David and I, my husband and I got home from work, we thought we'd be safe to pop over to a neighbor's two houses down just for 10, 15 minutes max. And when we got back, We walked into our back garden and found Ainsley sobbing uncontrollably, shivering in the snow barefoot with just her nightgown on. She was terrified of her brother's rage that had started shortly after we left. And I remember thinking, Kevin, that I was living in a home with an abuser. And that abuser was not my son. It was his mental health disorders. But equally important, I want parents to know they need to celebrate their their children's successes. You know, Andrew has this wonderful job at Rogers, gets himself to and from work, and he has a charm that's infectious. Ainsley is a gifted child and youth counselor. She works with a grade one autism classroom this year. And I'm convinced that it's her own lived experiences and her knowledge, deep intrinsic knowledge of Andrew, that's made her such a valuable resource. And this is what I bring together in my book, with advice for parents, such as trust your gut as a as a parent, reset the expectations for your life and of the support you can expect to receive from family and friends. Talk openly with your children. There are a number of others, and again, if listeners go to my website and ask for the newsletter, I'm happy to share those.
0: Absolutely, uh, and Dana- then. situation, because oftentimes they're high leverage. So I, I'm fascinated to get your perspective on how you effectively deal with family stress when you're in this type of a situation, and the importance of sort of what, what I call finding your inner center, really reconnecting with your own individual own individual self, or with your partners as well as you go through this process.
1: Kevin, this is a topic that's very close to my heart. I was so delighted when the well-known Canadian psychiatrist Peter Tsatmari, who works at both Sick Kids Hospital and CAMH in Toronto, he agreed to write the foreword to my book. And the foreword is extremely compelling. And I want to quote one sentence that he said. He says, quote, the patient is, in fact, the whole family. We know that children's mental health disorders play havoc with marriages and partnerships. You know, the strain and stress can be absolutely debilitating, but true partnership means working together in the best interests of the child, participating both equally in care and giving each other needed emotional support. It requires trust and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Now, my husband, David, and I are still married and we've survived as a couple, but many others don't. We've heard parents blame one another, make accusations, undermine their disagreements about everything, particularly about medications. You know, One parent may say, I don't believe in medications. I don't think my child needs them. Or they might be afraid that their child's going to become a zombie. And these stresses can separate and divide spouses and heighten the risk of divorce, which of course makes things worse. And David and I have not been immune from these challenges. There are so many times when the children's care is so consuming that we have no time for each other, much less ourselves. But the key is that we lean on one another and we trust one another. We even joke about the genesis of the kids' disorders. You know, David has a restless leg. And so I'll point to him and say, aha, ADHD. And he'll point back at me because I'm a perfectionist and he'll say, aha, OCD. But the key is it doesn't matter where these disorders come from, from a family perspective. What matters is that we act harmoniously in the best interest and try to carve out satisfying lives as spouses. Perseverance really works. You have to stick with it. And finally, don't forget about siblings. I just talked a few minutes ago about how Ainsley was so terrified about her brother's rages. And it was easy to relegate her to the background because he was so demanding. But every child, needs and and is and deserves equal care. We quickly, fortunately, recognized this, remedied it, spent a lot of time doing simple activities with her together, baking, skating, playing board games like Candyland, that she liked, that's key, that she enjoyed. But most importantly, we sat down with her and we explained what was going on with Andrew and his disorders. Communication is
0: key, isn't it?
1: Good parenting is all about good communication.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, Jack Trinnell often asks me why I'm so an, 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 an inspirational or a forward-thinking person. And, you know, I always tell him I'm simply living my life. And if I'm an inspiration to others, that that's fine. I'm fine, and I'll take that mantle. But I also say that the only level of expectations I have to meet are my own. Because if you don't have your own level of expectations, it's hard to reach anyone else's level of expectations, right? Right. So my question is, how do you reset the expectations for your children? Because I also tell people that there there's no 50% off policy when you have a disability, right? You can't and get back to a department store. So, talk to me about resetting expectations for your child. And as you said, only really celebrating little wins as
1: well. It's an excellent question. In the case of children's mental health disorders, they throw every family member's life into disarray. And I've experienced this there's going to be fear, anger, and resentment at times, and that's okay. But what's key is accepting that your life may not be as hoped for or planned for in order to move forward. You know, I describe in my book that David and I started our lives with rose-colored glasses on and dreams and hopes of happy, successful children. Who doesn't? But our reality couldn't have been more different. We were terrified of Andrew's rages and rituals. I was so drained by the constant calls from the principal at Ainsley School. And then relationship with family and friends are affected. Unfortunately, and it's true of all disabilities, but probably particularly with mental health disabilities and disorders, a lack of education leads to fear, misunderstandings, and stigma. My family was very well-meaning. And my mother, who was my closest confidant and support in the whole world, actually said to me one day, Jan, you just need to be a stricter parent and Ainsley's unruly behavior will disappear. I don't think so, mom. Uh, we've seen parents say their families aren't interested. They're afraid. It's too complex. And the worst are terrible, erroneous impressions that some family members may have. I've heard, oh, a child is morally deficient, or even a stain on the family name, if you can believe it. I mean, how would you react if a family member said that to you? Think about it. And then they are friends some friends will distance themselves. And that's hurtful. But in my case, it was compounded by the fact that I was so consumed by the children's care that I didn't have time to invest in developing and maintaining friendships. But fortunately, other parents with special needs kids really formed a community with us. We helped each other, embraced each other. We even joked about things that Other families may not find so funny, like Ainsley's rude swearing at teachers when she didn't feel supported, but they really helped us understand the reality of our situation and propelled me to persevere and have hope.
0: You know, having hope is uh, half the battle, isn't it?
1: That's the key.
0: (laughs) You know, Jenna, I've been inspired to share just this one personal story about myself and my family. My family, so uh, I'll actually share two stories. So I actually found out when I was nine years old that I would not be able to walk normally because of the se- severity of my cerebral so palsy. I remember it because I really believe this was the turning point in my life. Uh, so doc, all of my uh, procedures for my uh, disability were performed at. A, a Times valid Children's Hospital in London. I'm sure you're uh, somewhat familiar with the hospital.
1: Great hospital.
0: Yeah, so at the end of my last surgery, when I had recovered and I was discharged from the hospital, my parents and I were escorted were to a, a hospital conference room. And Dr. Tim Carrier looked at my parents and myself and he said, Kevin's last surgery was successful, uh, uh, but there was no, no more medical procedures performed because yeah, we believe we've done every, everything that we can. And to help your uh, chi- child from a medical perspective, and he looked at my parents and he said, your child won't be able to walk. And he went through all of uh, the ways that this was going to affect my life. And the next day, I had to go back to school. And I was nine years old at the time, and in fourth grade. And and I didn't know this at the time, but I I really think uh, what happened next to me really changed my life. So I was then, when I got back to school the next day, I had a scheduled meeting with the principal at the time, Dr. Carol Crowley. And she had everyone, including my parents, in her office that was assigned to my file from social workers to teachers to therapists. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she made a space in her office for my wheelchair at the center of the room and she said, the only limitations on your life are the artificial ones that you place on yourself personally. I really think that was the turning point in my life. And the second story that I wanted to share with you is that I also have an identical twin brother, uh-huh. and Keith and I were both born with cerebral palsy.
1: Uh-huh.
0: My brother grew out of his cerebral palsy when he was, when we were four months old, uh-huh. uh, and uh, it still affects things like uh, his handwriting and a hand, range of motion at times. But my brother is uh, now uh, an assistant uh, professor of sports psychology at, at uh, Missouri State University. So th- that's a long way of asking you about the importance of teamwork and really partnership, because, you know, my parents' philosophy in dealing with my disability, and I'm sorry, sorry now, but my parents' philosophy in dealing with my dis- disability is that we're all on the same team. So I'm, I'm fascinated to ask you about the, the importance of te- teamwork and partnership
1: when you have a child with a disability? What you just said, A, is so inspirational and wonderful, but also there's so many parallels with our family's life. I mean, to me, first of all, partnership and teamwork mean everything. And as I discuss in my book, Andrew and Ainsley have benefited from partnership and teamwork in spades. In Andrew's case, His psychiatrist and his psychologist have always regularly communicated with one another so that they can adjust approaches to medications and therapy. In Ainsley's case, her schools always, and I mean on a monthly basis, met with us, as yours did, with the principal, her teachers, her external psychologist, and us so that we could adjust course. Didn't always work. And she would have undoubtedly been thrown out of numerous classrooms otherwise. But that's what was so key about it. And of course, this partnership that you talk about extends into adulthood as your children grow. I talked about the contrast easily earlier between Andrew's previous employers and Rogers, his current employer. And you see how they treat me and him as a true partner. Again, there's that hope and help out there if we just keep at it.
0: Yeah, absolutely,
1: and just before
0: I ask you my final question, you've inspired me to ask this question because it's something that I'm personally passionate about. You know, once a child with a disability turns 18 and they still live at home and they're used to all of these wonderful services that they get when they're... uh, 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 until the age of majority, uh, and it's one of the reasons that I help establish at our local Children's Treatment Center a, really, a transition to adulthood program after uh, these children are discharged from, uh, in in my case, it's the John McGiffin Children's Center. I wanted a a space where parents could go once they're discharged from the center, because, as you know, after those services are uh, deleted from your life, you have to pay for them out of pocket if they don't have the appropriate level of insurance so talk to me about the
1: importance
0: of transitioning to adulthood as well because it's very
1: critically important isn't it it's absolutely critically important i mean the the true fact is that every stage is critically important but you're right there is a drop-off in services once you know it's children are there's an emotional connection to children and so governments and society look at children and that's the first place that services are sent to and are badly needed as you've heard once you transition to adulthood there are an increasing number of programs there's no question about that and it carries place we're really paying attention to young adults now we have uh, an autism advisory committee made of young adults, including Andrew, uh, and a number of other initiatives. There's peer support. You know, what about dating? There are all kinds of things that you have to look at on top of employment. Some of the other things you have to look at. Housing. You know, I said earlier that the wait list for supportive housing is decades long for those uh, with the mental health disabilities. Guardianship. Some Children that grow into adults will need legal guardianship, such as Andrew. My daughter Ainsley doesn't need it. And that's a very onerous process and complicated to figure out. But there is help and hope when you reach out to parents with me. And again, those tips are in my book. So uh, when it comes out, read it, take a look at the newsletter. And I'm here for you to, to give hope and help and tell you to persevere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Then, you know, my final, final question is, is the way that I end every podcast. And, and, and it's this. I, I'm curious to, for you, when you look at your personal and professional legacy, how do you want that to be defined?
1: As I said earlier, I'm a hope ambassador. And I'd like to be known as someone who had a positive impact on the lives of others, who helped ease distress and anguish. And who really gave people the inspiration and empowerment to persevere through the most difficult of times, to have hope, and to hold on tight.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Jan, finally, tell me, if people want to get connected with the great work that you do, or yourself personally, what's the best way they can do that?
1: Well, there are several ways. Again, my website is janstewardauthor.com Again, the book is called Hold On Tight, A Parent's Journey Raising Children with Mental Illness. Here, I'll show it to you. It's right here. Coming out March 8th. It is up for pre-order on Amazon, Indigo, and Barnes & Noble. I also am on Facebook and Instagram at Author, and I post every day. And my email, should you wish to reach out, is hello at com. Well,
0: fabulous, Jan. I really want to extend a thank you to you, not only for joining me in conversation and engaging in that this morning, but also as uh, an ambassador of friendship. And I look forward to our continual conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I really want to thank you for the good work Thank you too for joining me this morning. Your work in the space and time on my behalf is most appreciated. And I want to thank you for being here today.
1: Well, Kevin, you're an equal inspiration to me. So it's a mutual admiration society. And thank you so much for having me on.